Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Out-of-control overtime spending is not a substitute for a staffing strategy. We need a proactive, nimble, data-driven staffing strategy, which is built on strategic priorities for the police department. Chicago has more cops per capita than other major cities. Hiring more officers is not the answer here. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Chicago's Inspector General, Deborah Witzberg. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It has been roughly 16 months since now former Mayor Lori Lightfoot appointed you after dragging out the choice of a successor to Joe Ferguson and seemingly trying to find an alternative to appointing you as Joe's replacement. What have you learned about being Chicago's chief watchdog in the time you've been on the job? There's an enormous amount to do, and there's a lot of good work getting done. We have found ourselves in in the position of capitalizing on all of the good work that OIG has done over its history and, and moving it into a new era. We can do more and better. There are opportunities for growth and improvement in this agency. And I think it, it's, it's, been, it's been interesting and productive to apply the same sort of lens for continual improvement that we apply to other city agencies internally so that we have more impact in our work. When you say do more and better, do more and better where and how? We are expanding our investigative work around enforcement of the city's ethics rules. We are moving our investigations faster so that we more swiftly hold people accountable when they break the rules. I think that's a really important improvement in our practices. Um, we are on, on our kind of program and policy work we have completed the, the work we're obligated to do in response to the consent decree. We're following through on those projects. We are expanding all the time our data transparency work. That's the work we do to make information about how Chicago runs accessible to Chicagoans. That's expanding all the time. How many people do you have right now and how many do you think you need? The office is, the office is budgeted to have 125 full-time positions. Um, we have uh, about 105 people in, in, in seats right now. I think that... Why, why so is, many vacancies, are, 20 vacancies? 
that, that number's down, down significantly from where we used to be. Um, some, many of those are new positions. We added a number of new positions in this year's budget, and the start dates for those hires were spread out over the course of the year for budgeting purposes. So, so some of those are still coming online. Do you in need some more ways, people? Some, do you need more people? I mean, everybody wants more people, but do you need more people to make Chicago government more accountable, more honest, even though it isn't? <laughs> Never well, really. I, I think you're right. I think it, it's always the case when it comes to government resources. More is better, right? We could do more with more people, more with more resources. But, um, but we are well positioned and we are making an impact. It, it is certainly true because, as you say, problems of integrity and effectiveness in Chicago government are, are enormous ones. Every decision we make about what to work on is a prioritization decision. We are, we are not... We are not going to get done everything that needs doing. And so everything we decide to do has some opportunity cost. There's something that we don't do. And that calls for good and thoughtful processes to identify what most needs doing. So we try to think about, you know, how to organize our prioritization decisions. You've heard, you and I have talked about this before, that the organizing principle, from my perspective, is is that Chicago operates at a deficit of legitimacy and we, we are best served by directing our work at those problems where we can best pay down that deficit. And so we try to organize our prioritization decisions around the things that matter to Chicagoans in their day-to-day -day lives, that impact the perceptions of legitimacy of government and whether local government is, is a force of good in the lives of Chicagoans. Is the deficit getting better or worse and why? I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine it getting much better after the parade of corruption convictions that we've seen in federal court recently with the comment for being found guilty across the board, the upcoming federal trials of former Alderman Ed Burke, the longest serving alderman in Chicago history, and the trial coming up next year of former Illinois House Speaker Mike Madigan. Yeah, accountability is ugly, and I think that we certainly are seeing, that's a, that's a, a good recitation of, of the things that we are seeing, that's good news, not bad news. It's not that corruption is getting worse, it's that we're getting better at exposing it and holding people accountable. And how are we getting better? Is it because of moles like Danny Solis who got caught himself and then had to wear a wire on his colleagues in an extraordinary, extraordinary level of cooperation? I think we are seeing we are seeing culture change around government corruption, and that arc is is long. It took us many, many decades, many generations to get to this place where. There are, you know, the, where this, the Chicago way is synonymous with corruption and, and misconduct. It will take many years to, to bend the arc back. But I do think that culture is changing around government corruption. And I think that there are lots of outputs of that. If people cooperating in those investigations may be one of them. We are seeing more criminal enforcement. We at OIG are undertaking more investigative enforcement of the ethics rules. All of those things are contributing, I think, to paying down this deficit of legitimacy. So the culture is changing because of these convictions that seem so painful and so revelatory of, of, of how dishonest government has been? 
we're doing more enforcement leading to those convictions, those investigations, and they should be having a, an, an effect which discourages other bad acts. They should be having a deterrent effect. 16 months into the job, you now have a maximum of six and a half years to go. That is because the city council has imposed a term limit on the inspector general, two four-year terms, eight years max. You didn't need to have that apply to your first four-year term because the rules were changed in midstream, but you've said you're going to abide by it anyway. Why did you say that? Why do you think it's a good idea? Term limits are a good idea for basic good government reasons. They ensure, term limits ensure that the, in, the identity of an institution does not get too closely bound up with the identity of its leader. They ensure a balance between fresh perspective and innovation on one hand and institutional knowledge and experience on the other. In the case of oversight work and investigative work, where there is a huge amount of sensitive and confidential information, they also protect independence. It is absolutely critical to the meaningful function of this office that the person who leads it be neither too close with nor too acrimonious with other actors in city government to maintain the independence of the office, which is its hallmark. A term limit is, is the best way to calibrate all of those things. That's why we have term limits on the director of the FBI. Other cities have term limits on their inspector general. I think it ensures orderly and stable transition, which is among our highest obligations here. This office should be built to thrive and succeed long after any one individual is out of the chair. So don't we need term limits for the alderman, the mayor, the clerk, the treasurer, all the people you watch? I welcome a conversation about term limits in any position in city government. We in this office, we have a lot to say about how others in city government should do their jobs. We have an obligation to lead by example, and that is why I advocated for the term limit for my position. This is about leading by example. This is this is the right way forward. And don't we also need public funding of elections so that the biggest wallet doesn't determine who gets elected, or you don't need big unions uh, like like Mayor Johnson had the support of these major unions, the CTU, the SEIU, et cetera, asked me to get elected mayor. There are a lot of political questions around that issue which aren't for us to answer. To the extent that changes like that would improve our ability to keep improper campaign contribution influences out of city government, we should pursue those. The same ordinance championed by ethics chair Matt Martin lays out a very rigid timetable for choosing a new inspector general when the mayor decides not to reappoint the current one. Why do we need that? What happened under Lori Lightfoot? She dragged this out and she really it seemingly tried not to appoint you, sent the, the selection committee back to try to find three more names and there you were again because you were the strongest candidate, apparently. Uh, what do you think? Why do we need this succession process with rigid deadlines? There were two problems laid bare by how this process played out last time. 
um, you can't argue with the ultimate results. <laughs> from my I'm sure your mother can't either, or your husband, <laughs> or your kids. <laughs> well, it probably depends on the day you ask them. But um, there were two problems laid bare by the way this process played out. One had to do with how long it took and how opaque it was. That's sort of one problem. The other problem had to do with what happened within OIG during the transition process. With respect to the first of these things, how the selection process went, you're, it took too long and it was too opaque. It took many months. There was no visibility into the process or what was taking so long for anyone. And, and that left, as you it dragged on. In the meantime, within the office, there was no permanent term protected leadership. It was not clear how legal authority transferred from a permanent confirmed IG to an interim IG. The Both the term protected inspector general and the term protected deputy inspector general for public safety positions became vacant on the same day. This place is built to run with permanent term protected leadership for a reason, and it was left without that for way too long. And so the changes contained in this ordinance that passed address both sets of problems. They impose deadlines in the process, add transparency measures to the selection process, and the ordinance sets out a succession plan for what happens within OIG while the selection process is playing out. All of those are, are pieces of very good news for stability and robustness in transition. In the past 10 years, Chicago's Inspector General has asked the Board of Ethics to find probable cause of an ethics violation only 13 times. But three of those findings were in your last quarterly report and the targets were big names. Former Mayor Lori Lightfoot and newly reelected Alderman Jim Gardner. And there was also a member of the public thrown in who allegedly tried and failed to bribe a city inspector. Your quarterly report, as always, did not name names, but other sources and the underlying facts make it very clear that the targets are Lightfoot and Gardner. In both cases involving uh, these people, you are deliberately trying to be more aggressive in your pursuit of ethics violations, which could result in fines as high as $20,000, I believe, for each offense. What message are you trying to send here? I'll say a couple of things very quickly. One, we, we have successfully pursued findings of probable cause 13 times in the last 10 years. We've gotten findings of probable cause from the board 13 times in 10 years, three of them in the last quarter alone. And I, um, as you say, we I, we, we will not confirm the identity the identity of the subjects in those You don't have to. But to you don't question, have to. We already have. Yeah. We, the message we are sending here is that we are serious about enforcing the rules that stand between us and government illegitimacy. The rules apply to everybody, no matter where they sit or what title they hold, and we are serious about enforcing them. We cannot continue to pound a drum about the need for integrity in government if we are under enforcing the rules designed to, to make that happen. But I mean, do you really think that fines like this are going to make a difference for people like Lightfoot who sent thousands of emails, uh, her campaign sent thousands of emails allegedly to uh, city employees and public school employees soliciting their help in her campaign, soliciting contributions in her campaign. 
Is that going to make the difference and discourage other people from doing it? We won't know until we try. What, what we at OIG, what we can do is the job before us. Our job is to investigate violations of those rules, and we will do that more rigorously, more consistently, and more frequently than we have done it before. That is, that is the part we have to play in this system. And I think that it will make a difference. If, if city actors and members of the public see that we are taking enforcement of these rules seriously, that should deter rule breakers. And with Gardner, he he apparently had city inspectors write citations to a to a constituent who had spoken ill of him and opposed him. The concern in in the case you're referring to is that we cannot have city officials using the power of their city jobs to benefit their own personal political agendas. The power of those offices belongs to the people of the city of Chicago, not to individuals, not to politicians. And then the everyday Chicagoan who stuffed cash in a city building inspector's pocket in order to ignore, hoping to have the inspector ignore multiple violations on a couple of porches that the person had. Why did you do that? The inspector that turned is, down the bribe. That is some new territory in terms of ethics ordinance enforcement. Any person can violate the city's ethics ordinance by giving a city official an improper gift or a bribe. The, the importance of that investigation is to send the message that everyone must be really clear that City Hall is not for sale. The building inspector in that case turned down the money, reported the incident immediately, committed no misconduct, acted totally appropriately, which is really good news. The member of the public tried to bribe a building inspector. We cannot have that. The rules prohibit that, and we will enforce them. But, I mean, if you start going after cases like this, I assume you could do a ton of them. Aren't there lots of people who do that, who try to bribe city inspectors, thinking that the Chicago way, the old Chicago way, is still in existence? I think there are a lot of people who do that. The only way we shrink that number is to make clear that that people can't do it anymore. Right, but I mean, you could do nothing but that. I think that's right. And that goes back to our prioritization discussion. There's going to be more to do here than we can get done. This is a boulder up a hill exercise, but we're pushing the boulder harder than we used to. And you're doing it because what? Because government legitimacy matters. And these are, these are the rules that stand between us and government illegitimacy. In October 2017, Joe Ferguson concluded that Chicago was wasting millions on overtime in the police department because of inefficient management that failed to control cost, eliminate fraud, or prevent officer fatigue. He, his allegations about a culture of abuse were underscored by schemes he claimed were so prevalent that they actually had names for them, trolling, paper jumping, lingering, DUI guys. Um, he prom uh, Eddie Johnson at the time, the police superintendent at the time, argued that the strategy of using overtime at that time to mask a manpower shortage, which is what has happened, had run its course and that he was going to hold supervisors accountable 
for overtime and conduct random audits. The latest report by a, a, a very respected colleague of mine at WTTW, Heather Sharon, indicates that the police department has spent $125 million in the first six months of this year alone. And the scary thing about that overtime spending in the Chicago Police Department is that it did not include NASCAR or the July 4th weekend, police overtime being and the spending of it being months a month behind. Obviously, this has a lot to do with the current shortage of police officers. We're down something like 1,700 officers or more from the level we had before Lori Lightfoot took office. Uh, Mayor Johnson is not committed to filling those vacancies. He campaigned on a promise to promote 200 detectives, which would make the shortage even worse. What's the answer to this runaway overtime in the police department? It's been a chronic problem for more than a decade. Out-of-control overtime spending is not a substitute for a staffing strategy. What we need to be doing, we need to start with a thoughtful conversation about, the, about right-sizing the footprint of the police department. This is not a problem we hire our way out of. We need to make decisions about what functions should live within the police department and which functions should live somewhere else. Once we have identified those things that we want members of the police department to be doing, we need a thoughtful analysis of how many people it takes to do those things. We need a proactive, nimble, data-driven staffing strategy, which is built on strategic priorities for the police department. Chicago has more cops per capita than other major cities. Hiring more officers is not the answer here. We need, we need to be more thoughtful about what we want police officers to do and how many of them we need doing it. The city has historically been obstinately opaque about the police department's staffing strategy and what model the department is using to make resource allocation decisions. There are constrained resources here. There's not an infinite hiring pool. The pool of applicants to law enforcement jobs across the country is shrinking. We cannot assume that this is simply a question of hiring more officers. We're, we're not going to get an infinite number of officers, and we already have more cops per capita than, than our, our peer cities. We have to be making more thoughtful decisions about allocating resources. Yeah, isn't there a, more of a need than ever for a police reallocation study, the kind that activists have been clamoring for for years? Yes. Okay, and after you were appointed, you argued that both violent crime and the state of police oversight were at a crucible moment, and you said it wasn't a choice between reform and law and order, that reforming the police department uh, you said you needed to um, uh, to have a better um, investigative and disciplinary system that was more transparent. You also needed to have staffing as a critical piece, you said, of the overtime question. You need the right number of officers, both civilian and sworn, in the right places. And you needed transparency about how those staffing decisions were made, that too often the department withheld this information as privileged. Have we made any progress on that at all? Um, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, no, I don't think we have made progress. The, the critical observation from my perspective 
in terms of where Chicago is with policing and public safety and reform is exactly what you say. This is not about choosing between police reform and keeping people safe. It is only by reforming the way we police that we can keep people safe. And we're not going to get anywhere from where we are without rethinking the way we are allocating public safety resources across the department and uh, within the police department and across city departments. And you said that the investigative and disciplinary system in which people had reason to have confidence that that would go a very long way to building better trust between the police department and the community. Has the investigative yeah. and disciplinary system gotten any better or not? And if not, what's it going to take? The, the critical importance of that has to do with whether people believe that when something goes wrong, there's a meaningful opportunity for redress. Things will go wrong. Policing and law enforcement is messy and and there are messy outcomes and things go wrong. We can't prevent bad things from happening. We can build a robust and transparent system to deal with things when they go wrong. I don't Is know it? how much better things have gotten. We continue to do to take both system, a systemic look at the disciplinary system and we continue to review individual closed disciplinary cases uh, investigated by BIA and COPA. Just in this last quarter, we published a number of summaries of that work where we saw disciplinary investigations closed in a way that was deficient, materially deficient. We saw allegations of lying that went uninvestigated. We saw cases that were closed without finding um, for, for inadequately documented reasons, uh, leaving people on the force who have committed serious misconduct. Those are areas of tremendous concern. We put out a report recently on enforcement of the department's Rule 14, enforcement of the rule against lying. We found systemic, structural under-enforcement of that rule, such that there are something like 100 members of the Chicago Police Department on the job as we speak who have been found to have lied. We cannot ask people to trust a police department that lets its members get away with lying. And so, and so who's those, responsible for that, COPA? The investigating agencies, COPA and the Bureau of Internal Affairs, the police department itself, the police board in its adjudicatory capacity, and City Hall in its policy setting capacity. These are multi-agency problems. They require multi-agency solutions. And it's supposed to be you lie, you die. That's supposed to be the That's rule. Right. That's right. That, that lying disqualifies someone from service in the Chicago Police Department. That's, but it doesn't. That's what the rules but be. it doesn't. You're saying it has not. The, the the city has not walked the walk on on that idea. We've also looked in recent months at at uh, allegations that members of the Chicago Police Department belong to extremist groups. We've looked at the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Um, there's there's more to come. We'll have more to say about those cases. The appropriate handling of those cases is absolutely critical to the city's efforts to build trust in and legitimacy of the police department. We, I continue to have concerns about the way those cases are being handled. We will get the police department we deserve through the way we handle those cases. 
The mayor is about to make the most important appointment that any mayor can make. It'll define his tenure. It may define the duration of it, the appointment of a permanent police superintendent. There are three finalists who are recommended by the Community Commission of Public Safety and Accountability, insiders Larry Snelling and Angel Navales, and Madison, Wisconsin Police Chief Sean Barnes. Who do you think Johnson should and will pick, and do you have any doubt that it will be, and I don't, Larry Snelling, who is the overwhelming favorite to improve rock-bottom police morale? He's the safe choice. I won't speak to the specific candidates. I will say there's been a lot of conversation in this process about the importance of buy-in from the rank of and file and whether various candidates uh, have the confidence of the members of the police department. That's been, that's been a, a big driver of this conversation about an internal candidate versus an external one. What I will say about that is that a leader who has the confidence of the rank and file has a responsibility to do something meaningful with that confidence. Rapport with the blue shirts is not the object of the game. It's how a leader can make meaningful and transformational change. And so anyone who takes that job is obligated to either gain or make the best of the trust of their members to change the way we police in Chicago. And so are you worried that someone like a Snelling or somebody from inside like that will be, because he's one of the boys, not do that to the degree that is needed? One of the things that Charlie Beck has said, Charlie Beck, who served as, as interim superintendent here in Chicago and, and has served for many years in Los Angeles, he, he has said that new leaders have a steep learning curve, outsiders have a steep learning curve, and insiders have a steep forgetting curve. That's probably a good way to think about this. There's a lot to be said for, for strong relationships and internal credibility. There's also a lot to be said for fresh eyes and new perspective. Whichever angle a new leader comes from, their core responsibilities are the same, and that is to lead an effective, transparent, accountable police department that keeps people safer in uniform and out. Consent decree compliance has been painfully slow. Joe Ferguson argued recently that consent decree implementation and monitoring is a faltering undertaking, both in substantive accomplishment and transparency. And in the absence of what he called a hard methodological and operational reset, he believes the whole consent decree is at risk of high risk of failing. Do you agree with that? And what's it going to take there? I won't comment on Joe's remarks. I, I will say what the city should do at this point is report compliance, report full operational compliance with consent decree requirements. The consent decree is laid out in paragraphs. There are 799 paragraphs in the consent decree. And the way the city's progress is measured is in three stages on each of those paragraphs. There's preliminary compliance, secondary compliance, and full operational compliance. The city has, for the years of the, of the, that the consent decree has been in effect, the city has reported the number, the percentage of paragraphs with which it has reached some level of compliance. That's not a meaningful assessment that doesn't reflect reality on the street. Reform happens on the street, not on the paper. 
So when the city cites high percentages of paragraphs with which it has complied, what that often means is that the city is in what's called preliminary compliance with those paragraphs. That means the city has written a policy which says that it intends to comply with the paragraph. That has absolutely no impact on real life on the street, either for Chicagoans or for members of the department. The, the number that matters here, the metric that matters, is number of things that have changed in a real operational way. The number of things that would be different on Chicago's street corners today than they would have been at the beginning of 2019. And that number is very, very small. That number is in the single digit percentages. So are they going through the motions? The city is not making meaningful operational progress. Why not? I think the best assessment is that there are a combination of things happening here. I think that there, reform takes resources. The reform efforts within the department and elsewhere in the city have been under-resourced. Because there is this illusion that we are choosing between reform and public safety. Violent crime numbers go up at the personnel resources, other kinds of resources are reallocated away from reform work and administrative work and toward citywide teams, et cetera, that's a mistake. This is, we're not choosing one or the other. Reform takes resources and it must be adequately resourced. There is also the question of will, will to reform, tone from the top of the department about the importance of reform. That's absolutely crucial to making any progress here. Mayor Johnson campaigned on a promise to get rid of ShotSpotter, but he hasn't done it yet. In fact, he signed, I think it was a $13 million extension for the company that he blamed on an automatic signature that was applied to the extension without his knowledge. What do you make of that explanation and what should happen now? I'm not sure what to make of that explanation. What should happen now is what should have happened all along, which is that the city should engage in a thoughtful and well-informed cost-benefit analysis around the use of the ShotSpotter technology. All law enforcement tools should be subject to that sort of analysis. Is the law enforcement benefit of this tool, does that outweigh risks and costs associated with its use? Those risks and costs include dollar costs, they include damage to community trust when people are afraid of the tool or it's causing problems um, of legitimacy in Chicago's communities. All of those things should be weighed in a data-driven, data-informed way. That's what should happen now with ShotSpotter. That's what should have happened all along. And that, that's where our work on this issue landed, was to say that CPD's records do not themselves demonstrate a meaningful operational benefit to the use of ShotSpotter. So either the records aren't capturing the benefit or the benefit's not there. You've been investigating payroll protection fraud by city employees. What kind of fraud are we seeing in city government? We've seen a lot of it in else, elsewhere in other levels of government. We are pursuing both administrative and criminal investigations around PPP loan fraud among city employees. We're seeing two sets of problems. Assuming a basic fact pattern where a city employee goes out and gets a PPP loan for a secondary business, two kinds of things can go wrong. Either the business is fake and the employee is getting a fraudulent loan, 
or the business is real, but the employee has failed to disclose the existence of the business or their income from it to the city, which most city employees are obligated to do. And so we are pursuing cases in both of those categories, as I say, both administratively and criminally. This is a large-scale undertaking. It's a long-term one. We are doing this both proactively and reactively. We are getting complaints about specific allegations of fraud by city employees, and, and we're, we are we are reviewing those and proceeding as appropriate. We are also doing proactive data analysis where we are matching lists of city employees against lists of loan recipients and looking for indicia of fraud and pursuing those further. But how so, bad is it? How, how much fraud is it? It's a lot, isn't it? We have a big city it, workforce. It, it's a lot. I, and, and, and I'm not is there a lot of fraud that has been it, committed not. by city employees in payroll protection loans? Yes or no? We're not there yet. We're not there yet, but we're looking at a lot of cases from a lot of angles. Thousands, hundreds, dozens, what? We're not there yet. And what about migrant spending? Are you looking at anything there? The city has spent something like $100 million in migrant spending. Alderman want to know where the money went. Yes, is the short answer. And I think that actually there's, there's what, an interesting What, what about it are you investigating? Well, there need to be appropriate controls and protections around where public money is going, even in an emergency. And, and, and the analogy to PPP loans is a good one. Those loans went out the door without a lot of controls in place because it was an emergency. And look what However, happened. the costs of that have been very, very high. And so uh, the, the administration of emergency spending needs to be carefully calibrated. It can't be held up in, in bureaucratic red tape because then people aren't going to get the help that they need, nor can it be totally unfettered by any internal controls because then it gets abused. Nothing is more damaging to our ability to get help to people who genuinely need it than abuse of that help by people who don't. So what kind of abuses are you looking at as far as the migrant spending is? Too early to say, but, but we are anxious to make sure that the city is is striking that calibration correctly. You can't give me any clue as to what you're looking at there? No. No. Gu guaranteed minimum income? Is there any fraud there? That's the uh, $500 checks every month that's about to end the one-year pilot. Yeah, I, nothing I can speak to on that. Are you looking at NASCAR? Anything about that? or in analyzing anything there. NASCAR and, and other large events in the city are an area of a lot of interest for lots of reasons. I think that there, there are equity-driven concerns about whether we are using public resources for the benefit of a very small and, and very moneyed subpopulation in the city. There are questions about whether the city is, is earning money or losing money on these events whether uh, there are any in a, there's anything inappropriate about the way vendors are selected, et cetera. Many, many things going on with, with large events, large vendors in the city. NASCAR falls into that category. And before we let you go, how's your relationship with Mayor Johnson? Have you met with him? I have, and I, I am optimistic about our ability to, to work together on the things where we can work together. We always see tension between mayors and their watchdog.
No mayor likes to have headlines about, aha, I found this. Is that going to happen here too? If the relationship between an IG and a mayor is entirely warm and fuzzy, the IG probably isn't doing their job. But there are lots of opportunities for us to work together, and I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll do that. Deborah Woodsberg, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck rolling that boulder uphill. You sure have your work cut out. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks for having me. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.